Good morning. My name is Kelly Scott. I'm a pastor here at Trinity. And if you are new to Trinity or if you've only been coming for a few weeks, I want to extend a special welcome to you. I would love to meet you after the service. I will be uh, out in the back, which is actually the entranceway. I'd um, love to uh, get to know you a little bit after the service. We are nearing the end of our fall sermon series on what is called the primeval history that's recorded in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And for the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at Noah and the flood and what happened after the flood. Last week, Chris preached on the covenant that God made with Noah and with all of humanity when God promised to never again destroy the earth, um, or to send a universal. This covenant promise was not made because evil would never again reach this level, but rather it was precisely because humanity would deserve judgment again and again that God made a promise to be patient and to preserve stability in the world so that in his mercy and grace, his saving purposes could be worked out through his son, the promised offspring of Eve. Today, uh, we're going to come to the end of the Bible's account of Noah. Uh, It's a relatively short passage uh, that is is difficult in some ways and and actually tempting to skip over. Uh, And our second and third graders are actually doing a different but somewhat related New Testament passage this morning. Uh, But I think it's an important passage for us to consider for a couple of reasons. At a micro level, uh, Noah and his sons are struggling with things that we still very much struggle with today. And then at a macro level, the entire human race <laughs> springs from Noah and his sons. And, and, this, and this passage has some important things to say about how that shakes out in the world. And so if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 9, verse 18, uh, or follow along in your order of worship, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Genesis 9, 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for the teaching of it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have called us together to worship you this morning. We thank you that you give us your word, that you do not leave us in the dark, but you shine the light of the good news of Christ into our hearts. You speak to us to bring us back to yourself. Lord, we pray that you would speak through your word this morning. You'd give us receptive, soft hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of, one of the themes that we uh, briefly touched on last week is, is this theme of recreation after the flood. And Genesis is very 
specific and careful in the way it's written to, to draw out this theme of recreation. Uh, and we see this in, in the separation of the waters above from the waters after the flood. It's reflecting day two of the creation. And then dry land begins to appear, reflecting day three of the creation. And then a bird is sent out, or multiple birds are sent out, reflecting day five of the creation. And eventually the animals and Noah's family inhabit the land, reflecting day six of the creation. And then the commands given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply the image of God and to rule over the earth are reaffirmed to Noah. The passage that we just read continues this, this recreation theme with Noah as the new Adam. Like Adam, Noah has three named sons. And in verse 20, like Adam, we're, we're told that Noah begins to be a man of the soil. It literally, really, it literally reads that Noah began to be a man of the Adama, right? the Hebrew word for ground or soil. We could almost say that, that Noah began to be a man of the Adam. How will Noah fare as the new Adam, our new Adam? It's not a long passage, uh, but there, there's a lot packed into this story. And so as we move through it, we're going to see the biblical themes of cultivation and corruption, of sanctity and shame, and blessing and curse. Cultivation and corruption, sanctity and shame, blessing and curse. First, we see in verses 20 to 21, cultivation and, and corruption. Noah is the first viniculturalist or winemaker mentioned in the Bible. I've always really wanted to use viniculturalist in a sentence, and so check, done that. Uh, and wine, uh, in, in moderation, is seen in a very positive light in Scripture. Psalm 104 says God causes plants to grow for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. And so what we see here is, is that as the new Adam, uh, we see Noah doing what God had called humanity to do. He's doing it. He's, he's receiving from God what God has given in creation, and then he is keeping it. He is cultivating it, mastering it. And this is pleasing to God when done in a spirit of thanksgiving. And faith. As God's image and likeness, Noah is reflecting God's creativity and care for his creation in taking grapes and making wine. As author Andy Crouch says, grain is good, but bread is very good. Eggs are good. Omelets are very good. Trees are good, but a beautifully wrought wooden chair is very good. Sound is good. Music is very good. And we could add grapes are good. Wine is very good. I'm actually not sure I'd want to draw the good, very good line exactly like Crouch does here, but, but his point is still well taken. God has endowed us with the ability to further or to increase the good out of the good things that he has made. And this is what all of us are doing in one way or another, in our work. Whether the materials that we are given are grapes entrusted to viniculturalists, there's that fun word again, 
whether it's all types of, of materials and natural resources entrusted to engineers and builders and skilled workers and developers and designers, minds and hearts and lives entrusted to parents and teachers and counselors and advisors and spiritual shepherds, animals entrusted to farmers and vets, probably others, human bodies entrusted to those who do any form of medicine or physical care or who build hospitals or who coach or participate in sports, tiny but incredibly powerful chips of silicon entrusted to coders and other techies. Please fill in the blank for yourself if I missed your vocation. But our cultivation and care of these things was intended to be worship, reflecting God's image in our work. I have no doubt that that cultivating this vineyard was an act of worship for Noah, given what we know of his character. And yet, in verse 21, we now see that instead of ruling over creation as he had been, Noah is now being ruled by creation. Instead of ruling over the good work of his hands, he is now being ruled by the good work of his hands. Wine is good, but like all created things, it is a terrible God. A couple of summers ago, uh, it uh, it was a COVID summer, and so we were kind of you know, required to, required to be at home, weren't allowed to, uh, we, my wife Nancy and I were both in, in campus ministry, and we usually go on a, an overseas mission trip, but we were kind of locked down at home, and our, our COVID project uh, was taking this home uh, in our neighborhood that was, was really a mess, it was a, the yard was a jungle, the home was in, in disrepair, and um, at the time we thought my parents were going to uh, move down to Charlottesville so that we could help care for them, that hasn't happened yet, but anyway, um, they, they, Purchased this home, um, and, and we spent a good chunk of the summer renovating this home. And I, I had so much fun taking something that was a mess, taking a yard that was, was a mess, and, and bringing order to it, bringing beauty to it. And Nancy and I were working on it together. Pretty much any time we weren't doing campus ministry, we were, we were working on this house. And, and there was a great joy in that, and I think there was a goodness to that. And yet, uh, I got to the point, especially as the semester was about to start, in the end of the summer where every waking moment uh, that I wasn't doing other work was, was consumed with this project. And it, instead of me ruling over this renovation project, it began to rule me. Casey, uh, our worship director at the men's retreat on Friday night, shared a story about... Um, being ruled by a, a home project as well. So I guess it's a thing, okay? Maybe some of you have, have dealt with this as well. But I can very much relate to Noah being ruled by what his hands had made. As much as some scholars try to put a positive spin on Noah's drunkenness, arguing that it was really just a restful sleep, or by pointing out that the Hebrew word does not always have negative connotations, uh, although it usually does, Uh, It's clear uh, that the context of Noah's physical state in verse 21 is far from positive. In fact, there there are two later prophetic judgments in Scripture that actually speak of illicit explosure coming from drunkenness. Habakkuk 2 actually says, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and makes them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Just as Adam and Eve sinned 
and eating from the tree, Noah sins by drinking in excess from the vine. Whether or not we can can relate to Noah's specific sin here, all of us can relate to being ruled by the works of our hands. As students, we know what it is to go from loving God with our minds to have that turn into being ruled by our GPA, the God of perfect achievement, to being ruled by parental or social or self-approval that comes from grades and test scores and acceptances. As parents and teachers and counselors and advisors and spiritual shepherds, we know what it is to turn from loving those entrusted to our care to finding our worth in the progress and achievement of our kids or our clients. As builders and and creators and restorers, whether it's the home renovation project that turns from a healthy undertaking to an obsession that consumes our every thought, or a profession in building or design or music or medicine, we know what it is to invest the work of our hands with God-sized expectations about what it will do for our happiness or our sense of control or our status. Tim Keller says that we make an idol of our work whenever we imagine or trust anything to deliver the control, security, significance, satisfaction, or beauty that only the real God can give. Brothers and sisters, this this is the real stuff that we struggle with every single day. This is the stuff that we need to be honest with ourselves and with God, about which we need to be honest with ourselves and with God, and so that we will experience his forgiveness in our idolatry, and so that we will experience his renewal in our work to a good and rightful place in our lives. And this mercy and renewal is found in Christ. Because you see, precisely where Noah failed as our new Adam, our new head, and precisely where we fail, the New Testament reveals Jesus as the new wine. New Adam, Jesus pours out the wine of his blood as a sacrifice for our idolatry, becoming our true Adam and our true head. While we worship the works of our hands, Jesus takes the works of our hands and offers them up as a sign and a seal of his work for us on the cross. And not only that, but he promises to dwell in us by his spirit and calls us, fittingly enough in Ephesians 5.18, to not be filled with wine, which leads to corruption, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God made us for joyful worship in our work, and it's through daily reliance on his Holy Spirit, that we are restored from corruption to godly cultivation. And so I want to ask you all, this week, will you invite the Holy Spirit into your work? Students, parents, whatever you are, whatever you're doing, will you invite the Holy Spirit into your work? Will you ask God to show you the ways that you are worshiping the works of your hands? so that you can confess and repent and live in his grace? And will you, will you go on and work in that grace, knowing that through Christ you are forgiven and renewed? In the same way that this passage reveals both goodness and idolatry in our work, it also reveals the goodness 
and idolatry of our bodies. In verses 22 to 23, we move from this stark contrast between cultivation and corruption to another stark contrast between sanctity and shame. Sanctity and shame. There are some scholars uh, who believe that there are biblical euphemisms or figures of speech in this passage that, that point to something more scandalous going on here with Ham and Noah or perhaps Noah's wife. And there are some good reasons for those views um, that I've maybe spent too much time reading about. Um, But but among other problems with them, perhaps the biggest problem with those views is how Shem and Japheth's action of covering their father would have actually corrected anything or done any good if there was more going on than seeing. What I think is difficult for us to understand is why just this act of seeing is such a big deal. In a culture like ours that that continually desensitizes us and devalues the body and disintegrates the person by separating body from soul, the outside from the inside, the image from the person. In a culture like that, it's, it's difficult for us to understand just how carefully the sanctity of the body to be covered uh, because it's bad. It's, it's actually very good. But after the fall, the, the body is to be covered to protect us against our own warped desires that want to misuse the body outside of the lifelong marriage covenant of oneness between man and woman or that want to abuse the marriage covenant itself. If there's any question about how carefully the sanctity of the body was to be guarded, we need only to read verse 23, where Shem and Japheth refused to even look upon their father. The text takes pains to tell us two times in one verse that they carefully backed in so as not to see and disgrace their father. Now, there there wouldn't have been anything wrong, I imagine, with, with an accidental sighting on Ham's part. We're told that Noah was already uncovered, and so it's possible that it started this way. What was wrong, at the very least, was the shaming of his father by pointing out his vulnerable state to others. And probably perverted seeing is wrong, is implied or intended as well. And so what are we to take from this? We can learn a lot from Shem and Japheth. When they hear what happened, uh, they don't ignore it because it's awkward or difficult to deal with, like we're just going to go hang out over here. They certainly don't join in the shame, even though they seemed to be encouraged to do so. But they actually move toward their father, who's been offended and shamed, and they cover him. They restore dignity to him. They act like God does toward us in Christ, who fully knows our sin and shame, and yet still moves toward us to permanently cover our sin and shame by his blood. That's 1 Peter 4.8, which Corinne is... Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Are we willing to sacrificially move toward one another and toward others in love to restore dignity and hope through the gospel. For some of us, that might be a full-time vocation. For others, it may just mean being aware of and sensitive to the pain and shame 
of the people around us. For all of us, are we willing to invite trusted individuals into our lives to have those awkward, difficult conversations with us about our own sin and shame? About what our eyes are seeing and what our hearts are set on. Friends who will point us to both the grace and the power of Christ. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians who clearly struggled with all kinds of disordered loves and twisted sexuality, he reminded them who they were in Christ. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He reminds them that how they were and and even how they are is, is not who they truly are in Christ and who they will be in Christ. And then out of that cleansing grace, he goes on to remind them that that what they do with their bodies matters because one, these bodies will be raised with Christ. Two, because faithful physical union was created to reflect our permanent union with Christ. And three, because believers' bodies are a sacred temple of the Holy Spirit who has the power to enable broken, fallen people like you and me to actually glorify God in our body. That's kind of another sermon. That's that's all from 1 Corinthians 6. But Genesis 9 points us in this direction, revealing the sanctity and goodness that God intends for our bodies. So we've seen cultivation and corruption, sanctity and shame. And finally, we see blessing and curse. In blessing Shem and Japheth and in cursing Canaan, Noah calls on the Lord in faith. Um, He's asking God to execute justice in the generations to come. From Shem would eventually come Abraham and the nation of Israel and the promised Messiah, Jesus. And a number of other nations will come from him in and around the Arabian Peninsula. From Japheth would come peoples and nations who moved north and west, including much of what became the Roman Empire. And from Canaan, which was just a small subset of Ham's descendants... From Canaan would come peoples and nations who mostly inhabited the Middle Eastern lands just east of the Mediterranean and who were largely conquered by Israel uh, many, many years later. <clears throat> okay, I'll show this. So, so um, the, 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 these, these blessings and curses are going to talk about dwelling in, um, in another person's tent, right? That Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. And we're going to talk more about what that means in just a second. But um, I want to encourage you, don't, don't be afraid to find shelter and to dwell in someone else's tent. Uh, when my family, when Nancy and I and our daughter Aylin went down to, uh, to Oxford, Mississippi for my son's family weekend, um, Dennis Dorn, who knows most people east of the Mississippi and a lot of people west of the Mississippi, uh, connected us with, um, with, uh, with a couple by text uh, that used to go to Trinity, this wonderful couple, and, and they reached out to us and they're like, please stay with us anytime, um, please, you know, come and, and stay in our home. But I didn't know them, and you know, I'm thinking, I kind of want to have a little more control over where we stay and what our time's going to be like, and I, I don't know what the setup's going to be like there, and... 
And so I got really smart idea, an Airbnb, uh, a half an hour from Oxford. And it was a pretty good deal, and it had great reviews. Um, well, all the reviews were apparently fake. Um, because we get there, and this place was awful. I mean, it smelled so bad, had this incredibly musty odor. The paint was chipping on all the windows. Um, it didn't look like this in the pictures. Uh, I mean, there was a toilet seat on the front porch, okay? Um, so it was, it was pretty bad, all right? And maybe not as bad as I just painted it, but it was pretty bad. And we, we had to make it through that night. But I, like, guess who I emailed that night? Dennis's contact. And I normally, I, I like had to swallow my shame and my pride and say, you know what, um, we got a really bad situation here and I totally know, yeah, I totally understand if you can't do it, but if you, if it's free, you know, we'd love to come stay. And we, we came and we dwelled in their tent <laughs> and it was awesome and we had fellowship with Abby and Reed and, and we, they gave us good food and it was warm and it was wonderful and our bed was comfortable and we just had a wonderful time with them. I didn't want to dwell in their tent. I wanted to make my own. Don't be afraid to dwell in someone else's tent. We're going to see that. There are a couple of, um, of questions that we should try to clear up here. Why is Canaan, Ham's son, cursed instead of Ham? Well, two times it's inserted uh, into this passage in verse 18 and again in verse 22 that Ham is the father of Canaan and not mentioning Ham's other sons. Theologian Alan Ross believes that, that this points to Noah already seeing the character of Ham in his son Canaan. But regardless of whether Noah sees this or not, Canaan and the nations that will come from him will ultimately not be cursed because of Ham's sin, but because of their own sins. What we find as we read through the Old Testament is that the sin of Ham in Genesis 9 actually blows up into all kinds of terrible perversions in the Canaanite nations, provoking God to judgment. But in God's mercy, we also see exceptions to that, like the Canaanite Rahab and her family, who despite her sin is joined to the Shemite blessing by faith in the God of Israel. And on a much broader scale, Isaiah 19 and Psalm 87 prophesy in beautiful imagery about a future day to come when the descendants of Ham's other sons, who become Israel's strongest enemies, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, will repent and stream into the family of God and receive his blessing. And this is happening even today as the gospel goes out to the nations. The other question I want to ask here, the only other question I want to ask here is, what does it mean for Japheth to dwell in the tents of Shem, as we've kind of already talked about? What does it mean for him to find his blessing in the tents of Shem? Whatever immediate fulfillment there may have been, ultimately this is spiritually fulfilled when the good news of Jesus breaks out from Jerusalem, as we read about in the book of Acts, and it goes to Asia Minor or Turkey and into Greece and then to Rome and is still being fulfilled today. When anyone by faith is joined to Jesus, who is the true and faithful Shemite who came and tabernacled or tented among us, when anyone by faith is joined to him, they are brought in to the blessing of the tents of Shem. Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, says when the apostles and the elders of the early church uh, Gentiles, Japhethites, as well as Hamites and non-Jewish Shemites 
wrestling with these Gentiles coming to Jesus and sharing in the tents of Shem. He stands up and he says these words, and they're printed in your, in your bulletin below the Genesis passage. James says, Simeon, or Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What Israel mostly failed to do in the Old Testament, to be a tent of refuge that would bless the nations, Jesus has done. The tent of King David's Israel that collapsed under the weight of their own sin and rebellion against God has been rebuilt through the righteousness of Christ. And whether you are a Shemite, a Japhethite, a Hamite, combination of the three, unknown or don't care, there is room in the tent for all who trust in Jesus. And he invites us to come in. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great mercy and patience with us. You've given us good work to do and we are thankful you are merciful toward us when we idolize that work. Would you given us good bodies? And Lord, you are faithful um, and patient and merciful to forgive us when we bring shame um, to ourselves and to others. Thank you that you cover our shame in Christ and that through him we are brought in to the tent of refuge. We're brought into the Shemite blessing. We thank you for your great mercy toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.